But for this morning, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it, open it, turn it on if you'd like to borrow one of our NIV paperbacks in out of one of the boxes there in either one of the two center aisles. You're very welcome to do that. And here we go. We're going to do Mark chapter 15, verses 20 through 41. That's a relatively medium-sized chunk of text. Are you ready? Let's go. Mark chapter 15, verse 20. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Verse 23, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, that's noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, leme sabetani, which in Aramaic means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And these were also, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for the incredible privilege it is to come together like this. Thank you for the freedom that we have to, to gather, to study together, 
to turn our attention to you and receive from you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be our teacher now. Even as you are present here with us, I pray that you would open our hearts to be aware of your presence, that we would have hearts that are open, receptive, soft towards you, that we would hear what you would have to say to us and to each one of us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So what just happened? A lot, a whole lot, and it's not just because we read a large portion of text, whopping 21 verses, but because Mark, in the last six plus hours of Jesus' life, before he dies and is resurrected, packs in all sorts of information. I think it's worth noting that what he doesn't do is attempt to exploit the emotional intensity of the moment. Isn't it interesting? He just gives us a barrage of facts and then lets us process, think about what's just happened. Um, Let me attempt to summarize everything that we've just read as succinctly as I can. Starts at first thing in the morning. If we back up a little bit, we're told that it's like the break of dawn. Just as the sun is coming up, they've tortured him, they mock him, they push him out into the streets where he's led up to the hill to be crucified. Verse 21, they grab Simon, a Cyrene, out of the crowd and force him to carry Jesus' cross because presumably he's been beat almost to death and can barely walk. Verse 22, we're told the specific location of his crucifixion, a place called Golgotha, which means place of the school, if you've ever, school, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, there's actually some hills just outside of the city that actually resemble the shape of a skull. Verse 23, they offer him wine mixed with myrrh, which would have been a kind of narcotic, apparently, to numb the pain, perhaps, and he refuses. Verses 24 through about 27, it says at 9 a.m., he's crucified between two criminals while his executioners roll dice to see who gets his clothing. They cast lots. Um, When John records this moment, the fourth gospel in the New Testament, he points out that this is actually some kind of prophetic fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 18, where it explicitly says they will cast lots and divide his garments. Verse 26 It says that his crucifixion plaque reads, King of the Jews, which like everything else happening in this moment is a total mockery. It kind of would seem that Pilate, the governor, the Roman governor who oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus, he didn't really want to crucify Jesus, but the leaders of Israel sort of twisted his arm and to get back, he put a plaque above Jesus that said, fine, I'll crucify him. I'll crucify your king. Verse 29 says the crowd, once again, we have the crowd. They always seem to make an appearance. And the priests, they continue to mock him. They say stuff like, you saved yourself. Or you saved others. Why don't you save yourself? Come down off the cross, and then we'll listen to you. 
Then maybe we'll believe what you have to say. Verse 33, it says, at high noon, everything goes dark. Now, this is slightly bizarre. I used to read this and think to myself, um, oh, wow, that's, how crazy is that? A full solar eclipse, the moment Jesus was crucified. I used to teach um, astronomy to middle schoolers, part of the science curriculum. Um, some of you probably already know this, but the Passover meal would have been celebrated on the first full moon after the vernal equinox. You can't have a solar eclipse when the full moon is out. So I don't know what exactly is happening in this moment, but everything goes dark. I would suggest that this is like apocalyptic speak for God is doing something on a cosmic scale. In fact, if you read the commentaries, um, we're told that this is an obvious reference to Amos chapter 8, verse 9, one of the Old Testament prophets. Look it up, Romans or Amos 8, 9. It's describing the day of judgment. And he says explicitly, at high noon, all will go dark. Mark is definitely trying to tell us something. In this moment, Jesus has substituted himself in the place of his executioners to receive upon himself the judgment of God. He has become the representative Israel that Amos speaks about. He is absorbing the wrath of God for us. Verse 34, 3 p.m., he cries out the words. He quotes Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We talked a bit about that a couple weeks ago, what it means to walk the lonely road and how he was forsaken so that we are not. Verse 37, finally, then Jesus cries out with a loud voice. He cries out and exhales and dies. Finally, in verses 38 and 39, we're told the curtain in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. And we're told that while the centurion, while this happened, the centurion who stood directly facing Jesus sees the manner in which he died and exclaims, truly this was the son of God. He sees how the king dies and he exclaims, we've just crucified the Messiah. And then, we're told that the women, Jesus' female disciples, they're looking on, watching, waiting faithfully, standing by. Interesting. What do we make of all of that? Well, let's, let's highlight the obvious points. Number one, Jesus suffered and died for the very people. He stood by mocking him and cheering the empire on as their so-called king hung there dying a criminal's death. Okay, that you can't miss. You cannot 
Skip that part. Secondly, he didn't have to go to the cross. He didn't have to suffer and die. He could have saved himself. He could have come down. He could have called down fire. He could have cried out to Elijah. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll recall Elijah was the fiery prophet. He was the one that confronted uh, the prophets of Baal and Ashtaroth. And in a moment at Mount Carmel, there was this like insane showdown. And, and Elijah was the one that said, the true God is Yahweh. The creator God, God Almighty, the one that, we're, that we were rescued by. When we used to be slaves back in Israel, now everyone is worshiping these what? Demons? False gods, not real gods. And, and so they arrange for a God off. And it says that Elijah calls down fire. And he wins. God wins. Yahweh wins the day. Jesus could have called down fire. Jesus, Jesus could have organized a, a, a revolt. He could have led an army. He could have said, pick up your swords. Now is the time. The kingdom is nigh. Let's tear down the wall and, and we will show Rome who has the real power after all. But he didn't. Why? Because he was fulfilling the very purpose for which he came. His mission was to go to the cross and to die for us all. And when he did it, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The temple, the the place, the holy place where God would dwell, would manifest his holy presence. And there was a particular place in the temple. They called it the Holy of Holies. And once a year, it was just about to happen. We're talking about Passover. Once a year, one high priest would go through this, uh, this ornate cleansing ritual to prepare himself to pass through the curtain into that holy place and offer sacrifices on behalf of Israel. A lamb. Only when Jesus, who John pointed to and said, behold, the true lamb of God, who has come to save the world, died on that Roman cross for us, it says that the veil was torn in half from top to bottom so that now all could enter into the presence of God. That's awesome. That's a, that's a hallelujah moment. Someone give it to me. Hallelujah. Thank you. See, I, I knew you guys had it in you. So that's, that's the obvious stuff. There's some other things going on, though, that are much more subtle. Also very, very powerful. And I want to draw this stuff out. Now, Let's just back up a little bit. If, if you're new to Mark, just bear with me. If you've been tracking with us throughout this journey, you might remember, think, think back to everything we've, all the stories, all the moments, all the interactions, the people. 
Most of Mark is full of moments where Jesus is confronting confused, self-centered, sinful, broken people. Like most of the people besides Jesus himself are just like not great people. People like us, sinful people. Occasionally, there's, there's a few people who seem to like be getting it right. For example, um, there is John the Baptist. Uh, he's, he's great. I mean, Jesus himself says like, there's no one better than John. This dude's, follow him. And John's like, no, no, don't follow me, follow Jesus. He gets it, he gets it. Um, of course, by chapter six, we're told that Herod beheads John. Tragic. Um, in chapter 7, we have the Seraphonician woman, the Gentile woman. You might remember this. Uh, I described it as an acted parable of grace. Remember that one? Where Jesus is having dinner with some of his disciples in a Gentile region, and this woman somehow makes her way in to this little private dinner party and begins to beg Jesus, can you please cast the demon out of my daughter? And they have this whole interaction that was a beautiful moment. Um, and then more recently, chapter 12, there was the widow with the two copper coins. Remember when Seth, Pastor Seth came from Grace City Corvallis? We got anyone from Corvallis visiting this morning? There we go. And he talked about the widow who was all in, even though she barely had anything to give at all. And Jesus was like, she gets it, she gets it. But other than those three, and you might include the children as well, Jesus is down with the kiddos. They're also spoken of very positively when they show up in Mark. Other than that, everyone else is essentially confused, including his own disciples. Until we get to the last approximately six hours of his life, all of a sudden, we're introduced to three more really cool characters. Who are they? Number one, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Rufus and Alexander, right? Who is he? The centurion who's actually given a speaking part. That's kind of a big deal. He's given a line just as Jesus is about to die. And then, of course, you have the women who are spoken of very positively. They're the faithful ones. They're the ones, the only ones, when everyone else ran, who are actually standing off, looking on, waiting to see what's, what's next. They didn't abandon their Savior. I would say these, these are the outliers. These are the nobodies. These are the randos, the people who just are there. They don't really seem to belong, but all of a sudden they play these amazing roles in the story. The great 12, quote unquote, great 12. Remember how towards the end of the journey, the disciples kept having this argument over and over and over about who was the greatest of the disciples. Really embarrassing. They're gone. They've split. They're nowhere to be found. Instead, we find the African man, Cyrene's North Africa, coming in with his sons from the countryside. Like a farmer or something. He's not a city man, which says something. If you were anybody of any note 
or, or worth or status, which was everything in the Roman Empire. You lived in the city. Rome, if you really had it going on. You get this African man coming in from the countryside, the mere passerby, who's given the privilege of becoming the king's armor bearer on the way to his greatest battle. Think of it. The king isn't going to his defeat. King Jesus is marching into battle. And his weapon of choice is the cross. This is Genesis 3.15. Remember back at the very beginning when the serpent attacks God's children and he lies to the woman, interestingly, and everything begins to unravel and God intervenes. He goes looking for his people, his children, his lost son and daughter. And he says, what have you done? Who lied to you? What lie did you believe? Of course, the man doesn't do too well. The woman does better. She says, the serpent lied. And so God turns to the serpent. He says, you're cursed. He curses the serpent. He curses the ground. And he says to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, one shall come, the offspring of the woman, the seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. King Jesus is going into battle to put the steel-toed boot of his heel to the head of the liar. And his weapon of choice is the cross. Simon, a Cyrene, is the king's armor bearer. I love that. Some random country guy from Africa. What about the centurion, the Italian gangster? I got Italian family. The unclean Gentile gets the most epic line in the whole book, I would argue. He gets the most epic line in the whole book. He says, he's, so God picks him to reveal the true identity of Jesus at the climax of the story. Verse 39, truly this man was the son of God. There was one other person in the entire story of Jesus who had that revelation. It was Peter. And Peter fell hard. And now, just as Jesus dies, the centurion of all people, the enemy of God's children, the one who's executing the king himself. God says, you, revelation, bam. Truly, this was no death of a martyr. This was the victory of a great king. Truly, this man is exactly who he said he was. He is the son of God. And then the women. It's, it's a rather bizarre little um, inclusion at the end of this passage. But obviously Mark wants to emphasize, he needs us to understand that the women are still there. The women who are virtually powerless in this ancient patriarchal empire, they're the ones who remain faithful. The women who are voiceless in this ancient system of oppression, 
They're the ones who remain faithful, and as we will see next week, they're the ones to actually become the very first apostles. They're the ones who witness the resurrected Christ first and go and tell the others. This is the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to launch. These aren't just random arbitrary details and people. Mark waits till the very end to describe what God's kingdom looks like. It breaks out in that moment. This is what each one of us is invited to be a part of. A part of. This is our vision as a church. And this is what the Spirit of God does. This is what he does. He gathers the most unlikely. He utilizes the weak. He takes those who the empire marginalizes, who say, you don't belong. You have no voice. You have no value. You're a nobody. And God says, if you'll trust me, I'll use you like you would never imagine. This is what the kingdom of God does. And I was reflecting on this during the week, uh, ages ago, I did, um, this is slightly random, but I, I like church history. I like reading about what God has been doing over the ages. If you've never read a good church history book, it's, it's incredible what we're a part of. And it's a great reminder to, to, to know that we're a part of something that God started a long time ago. It's big, it's massive, it's universal, it's eternal. And this is why we're here. But I was thinking about this, and you guys remember uh, the Azusa Street Revival? Most people have at least heard of it. 1906, it was the summer of 1906, April to be exact. A gentleman named William Joseph Seymour, an uneducated black man from the South, felt like God was leading him to start praying. He was actually a janitor at a seminary. And just while he was there, he felt God prompt him to start praying for revival. Somehow he ended up over on the West Coast, and he's praying and praying and praying, and begins to gather some other people like him. Nobody's just like him. And they start praying. And in the summer of 1906, God finally answers their prayers, and he begins to pour out his spirit in an unreal way. And it's one of these things where it's like, you don't hear about revivals and this and that, and rumors of miracles. But then occasionally you read about moments in the, the history of God's church where things are actually documented, where it's indisputable that God is moving. People are being healed. The unlikelies are being called to take part in the extraordinary things of God. And that's what happened on Azusa Street, Southern California, a little over 100 years ago. Um, I want to read this to you guys. This is a, a historian named Harvey Cox. Um, he writes very honestly about some of the things that happened during that time. Um, and this is what he says. In retrospect, the interracial character of the growing congregation on Azusa Street was indeed a kind of miracle. 
It was, after all, 1906, a time of growing, not diminishing racial separation everywhere else, particularly in California at that time. But many visitors reported that in the Azusa Street Revival, blacks and whites and Asians and Mexicans sang and prayed together. What seemed to impress or disgust visitors most, however, was not the interracial leadership, but the fact that blacks and whites, men and women, embraced each other at the tiny altar as they wept and prayed A southern white preacher later jotted in his diary that he was first offended and startled, then inspired by the fact that, as he put it, the color lines were washed away by the blood. That's a quote, if there ever was one. This is what God's family is like. Because the curtain has been torn in two from top to bottom. Everyone is welcome. Anyone who looks to Jesus gets a set of keys to the kingdom. There are no outliers. There are no passerbys in the family of God. We're all equal. We're all one. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. When those who are once deemed by the old kingdom, the empire of exploitation, when those once deemed as unimportant, without dignity or less than another, when those once deemed as the least are now given the seat of honor at the table, then you know that King Jesus is sitting on the throne in the midst of his people. You know that when blacks and whites and Asians and Mexicans and others and men and women and people of all sorts and kinds are coming to the altar to repent and weep and pray and cry out together to King Jesus, you know that the kingdom is actually breaking out. You know that the temple curtain has been torn in two from top to bottom because God is calling people of all kind to come and bow at the feet of the king together. That is, I, I'll die for that. I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that in this city. I want to be a part of that in this neighborhood. What will it take? Like how, how does a church actually embrace that, pull that off? You know, the story of the Azusa Street Revival did not end well. It eventually ended in a new denomination called Pentecostalism. But the leadership, the unity, the the interracial, interracial miracle that was happening, it actually didn't go well at all. Eventually, they segregated themselves once again because everyone, because it, it was, because people just suck sometimes. Forgive my, my language. What does it take to participate in something like that, to be that kind of family that actually represents the family of God? 
I'm talking that every tribe, tongue, and nation family that's going to be gathered for one giant party in heaven someday. What does it take besides just like a miracle? Well, it takes a miracle to be sure. It takes the people that are willing to lay down their lives for another. That's how it started. The king laid his life down, not for those who just looked like him and spoke his language and thought him and came from his culture. He died for the African coming from the countryside, the father of Rufus and Alexander. You know, there's another Rufus in the Bible, Romans 16. There's a Rufus that's given a shout out at the very end of that great letter. I think it happens to be Simon's son. The centurion, the sworn enemy of God's people, who in a moment witnesses that this is a king giving his life for him, for the world. Could you imagine? I mean, you know, we, we, you all heard the, um, the anecdotes, the comparisons. I mean, who, who would that be if they came into our midst? A few weeks ago, if you were here, you may have noticed three young men walk into our service right about this time. And they were wearing interesting clothing. Anyone remember that? I, I remember it because I'm, I'm like, I noticed that several of you sort of look because you can see someone out of the corner of your eye walking in, and I could feel the anxiety level in the room rise. Because it was like, whoa, like who are these people and why are they dressed this way? They, you know, I don't know what you were thinking. I saw them, I was like, oh, this is interesting. Who are they? Why are they coming in late? And they went straight up to the balcony, and it was just, it was slightly weird. You know what, you know what their story was? I, I made a beeline for that little area right after the service. I'm like, hey, what's up, guys? What's, what's your story? Talk to me. And you, obviously, you know, they would expect someone to just ask. And they said, oh, we're, um, we're Jews. We love Jesus. He's our king. I suspected as much, because I've, I've spent a bit of time in Israel. They were dressed like Orthodox Jews, Jewish believers in Yeshua. But the reason I bring it up is because when they came in the room, you could tell there was this slight anxiety that spiked in the room. Ooh, they're different. Like, are they terrorists? Like, well, what do we do? Like, hmm, I, I get it. It's a perfectly natural concern or, or response. But what does it take to be the kind of people where it's like, it's slightly uncomfortable? Like, you're not, it's, none of us feel quite in the right place because we're all slightly different. We have different colors, we have different backgrounds, we have different languages, different things that we're used to, different theologies even. I'm not talking about like your heresy and my orthodoxy. I'm talking about you're coming from different parts of the world so you think fundamentally different and you're still a believer in Jesus. You are my brother or my sister. We are in one family of God. How do we do that? We die to ourselves. I lay my life down so that you might be built up. We do the hard work, the painful work of considering the interests of others before myself. We learn how to listen. We learn how to do reconciliation. 
We do the hard work of actually being a healthy family. And when anxiety levels go up, we don't go out. We stand in it. When misunderstandings take place, we don't just go to a new church. We stay put. And we do Matthew 18, conflict resolution. Sometimes it means getting some other people involved to mediate because I don't like you and you do it wrong. It takes taking up our own crosses like our king and dying to self. And, and when the world looks on and sees the African, the centurion, and the women all worshiping our king together, and when they see the manner in which we die, the way we lay our lives down for one another, then they too, perhaps, may finally exclaim, the king who you claims, who you claim has set you free and rules in your heart, maybe he is who you say he is. Truly, maybe this Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. When the family of God comes together in its extreme diversity, when we see this sort of kingdom breaking out in our city, and our city looks on, waiting for the next epic fail, but all they see is grace, truth, forgiveness, people dying to themselves for the glory of God and for the sake of one another. Because be sure of this, we may all be invited into the party, especially the least among us, but we're also all called to die to ourselves for the glory of God and for the sake of others. I mean, you may come in one way, but if you bow to King Jesus, you're going to be changed. And when people look on and they see the church of Jesus dying in that manner, perhaps the world will exclaim, this Jesus is the Son of God. Can we stand together, please? You're now listening to Grace City Portland.